Right now, though, we are talking about what we might see when it comes to hospitalization rates in this province, that with the Omicron surge. And joining us once again is Caroline Colain, SFU professor and Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Caroline, thanks so much for being with us. Hello. I was going to say Happy New Year to you, but this isn't the the best story and not a great prediction. But thank you so much for being here to take a look at these numbers. What are the numbers telling you as far as what we might see with hospitalization? Yeah, so it's hard to really predict, of course, and there's a lot of uncertainty behind these numbers. Uh, partly because we don't know the number of infections and we don't know the, uh, you know, exactly the severity. But what we can do is use models to try to synthesize what we do know. We know that Omicron causes need for hospitalization or severe disease at a lower rate. We know more people are vaccinated and vaccines also protect us from severe disease. The problem is that the sheer numbers of infections out there still produce uh, a very likely very high burden on the healthcare system in the coming weeks. And that's, I think, the number that a lot of people are, are looking at or concerned about, because even anecdotally, the the thing for me that I think has changed in this wave and what's changed for just even talking to people is we now know, everybody I know, myself included, we now know people that are at home with COVID that have what is likely Omicron and are recovering at home. But I, I don't know anybody who's in hospital. And I think that's what people are wondering about. Are we really seeing those numbers show up in hospitals? Right. And that's yet to be seen. I think in Ontario and Quebec, they are seeing that. Um, and I don't think we are, you know, epidemiologically, you know, as, as humans in our health, we're not fundamentally different than people in Ontario and Quebec. So I fear that we will see that. We're lagging a little behind, so it hasn't quite taken off as much here, I think, yet. But it is definitely taking off exponentially. You know, we estimated a ballpark of between eight and 9,000 daily cases, which is, you know, would have been unthinkable in previous parts of the pandemic because we would have acted, because we would have already seen that signal in healthcare demand. This is spreading so fast, and it's, it is less severe um, or causes... Of, you know, need for hospital at a lo- much lower rate, so that, but that, and that's good. But it also means that that indicator is more lagging. So we need more and more <laughs> infections before we start to see it. So it may not be surprising that we don't individually. You know, we know people who have COVID. I, I agree with that. Not all of them are experiencing it as mild in the sense of this is okay. I can live like this for ten days. Many are experiencing what they would consider quite. Um, yeah, unpleasant symptoms, even if they're not needing hospital. Um, but you're right, we are, we're not yet seeing that in, in kind of anecdotally in the people we know. It doesn't mean it isn't happening. It has happened in Quebec and Ontario and in many jurisdictions in the U.S. Pressure on the NHS is high in London and in, in the NHS generally in the U.K. So I think we, you know, there's huge cause for concern here, and, and we do see those rises forecast in the models for a few weeks from now, not for necessarily right now. And when you say for a few weeks, I know I saw some numbers that, that seem to indicate that late January might be when we could see another big jump or a number, a projection of between, I mean, it's a pretty wide range, 2,000 and 10,000 people in hospital at peaking at, at that rate. Do, do we, when you mention those other jurisdictions, though, are we able to look at those other jurisdictions, do you think, and try and use that information to get a better idea? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, that's where we, you know, where we take those projections from. 
infections to need for hospital. We take that from, you know, there's a recent study from Ontario that looks at the comparison and severity. There's data from the UK. There's data from South Africa. Um, there will be more data coming uh, in, in coming weeks as people continue to publish what's happening in their own jurisdiction. So, you know, that is how, how we do it. And I think the range is, you know, the uncertainty is partly in how big is that reduction in severity and how does age of infection play out? We've seen infection rising in younger people. In previous waves, that has moved into older populations. So that would make the kind of infection to hospitalization a little worse because we know older people are more at risk. Um, so there's uncertainty there, and there's uncertainty about transmission. We know lots of people know someone with COVID now staying home, staying away from crowded places, holidays over. So the slowing transmission would also delay the peak and would lower the peak. And we don't we don't know that. And it's hard to get a signal for that without the the daily testing. And we've you know testing capacity has been reached. So it will be hard to to know that. And that's why there's so much uncertainty in those numbers. It is. uh, You're right. And and again, even it's anecdotally, uh, of course. But even I mean, I know two families where half the family has tested positive. The other half hasn't. But it's kind of a waiting game. And they just feel like they're still living in the same house, even though they're trying to stay apart. But they still are under the impression they're going to get it at some point and then add to those numbers. Right. And they may also then not be choosing this time to go out to restaurants, even at half capacity or to go to parties or to go to school or to go to events. So, you know, that may decrease the transmission. There's also differences between different places. People may now stop traveling. And so we may find some communities don't have a, the, the same kind of Omicron peak. And I hope that's true. So, you know, those are just some of the things that are that are hard to model, um, that are hard to estimate without data on what people are doing. And so, you know, yeah, those are sources of uncertainty. But I think despite all of that, there aren't really plausible models that we have been able to come up with. And we we would like to be optimistic that say, oh, you know, it's fine. Like low chance of high burden on the healthcare system. They all sort of even the optimistic ones give you that factor of two or four uh, greater than the past peaks. And that's a cause for concern. Is it also a cause for concern because of the transmissibility of this virus, even though, as you said, and, and we're seeing in those other places where it's it for in a lot of cases, it is milder, but we're also seeing cases that we've not seen before as far as hospital workers, first responders and people in the community who the numbers are just so much larger. So if we just look at hospitals, even if the hospitalization rates don't skyrocket, if we're dealing with half staff, that's going to be a problem too. Absolutely. And that's, I think, part of, partly what they're finding in the NHS too. The, the nature of the burden is different, not so much driven by ICU and oxygen needs and more driven by wards. And, and I'm parroting what I've read. This isn't something I've experienced or have, have a deep expertise about. Um, but absolutely, if um, healthcare workers are themselves ill, they don't, you know, too ill to come to work. Maybe if they don't need hospitalization, and so it's quotes mild, it's still not working is a disruption if we don't have the staff. And we're already seeing that with um, first responders and with healthcare workers in other provinces. And that will also affect our capacity because it's not just physical beds; it's people and staff and nurses and doctors and other healthcare staff. So for sure, I think that's something that. Uh, that, that is worrying and that isn't really in our models. We use the models more in, in the way of just you know, sort of infections to hospital need. So that would that would worsen what we what we projected.
And so, Caroline, just one last question, then. What do you think we should be doing as far as uh, kind of balancing going about our daily lives, knowing that it is very much in the community? It's it's more transmissible. More people are going to get it. We're going to see those numbers continue to go up. What what do you think we need to do to kind of keep a handle on this? Yeah, I think this has been placed in the hands of individuals to some extent. And, you know, we, I think, you know, now is not the time to get in a car accident. Now is not that the next few weeks or the next four to six weeks, I guess, are a time to, you know, avoid contact if you can, to wear the best fitting mask you can and and make sure it's high quality and fitting as much as possible to get vaccinated. If you haven't, I know people are kind of using this as a talking point around, well, you know, the vaccines didn't work they are working. They're keeping, that's how this is less severe. That's how you're going to get it to be mild is to, to have those vaccines and the boosters, um, you know, limiting contact, the usual thing. I think ironically, in a way, now is the time when you would get the most relative protection from staying in. And so people who are at risk or who are immune compromised or have other risk factors, if they can, would benefit from reducing social contact even more in the next six weeks than they would have at any time before. All right, Caroline, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. Well, a lot of people woke up this morning to find a fresh, new, well, I'd say a few centimeters in many cases, a lot of snow, whether it was outside your front door, on the streets, as you tried to make your way to wherever you were going. But my next guest actually spent a lot of time with a different perspective. Joining me on the line now is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, you had a pretty busy night. You were out riding along with a snowplow. Yeah, it was an awesome experience. Something off the mayor bucket list for sure. I <laughs> uh, was able to join our snowplow crew and uh, get a first-hand look at the work that they do to keep our roads clear and keep our community safe. So how long were you out with the crews? Uh, I was only out for a few hours. They were out for, uh, geez, since 11 p.m. last night. So uh, they went the the full distance, but I just had a a bit of a taste of of what they were up to. And it's interesting that that you were able to get that perspective, because I think even when we see snowplows on the roads, and uh, even today I've seen at least one photo of one in Vancouver that got stuck to show just how how treacherous the roads are. But we kind of think they're invincible, that that's the place where they can go anywhere and get through anything. But what was it like when you were in the, in the passenger seat and looking at it from that perspective? Well, you realize pretty quick how much skill it takes to navigate one of those. I mean, they're, they're big plows and there's some pretty tight spots that they get in and out of. And, and the way uh, the drivers maneuver them is, uh, is pretty incredible. So, you know, particularly we were going down a couple of side streets. You had cars parked on both sides of the street. Uh, so they're navigating that. Uh, we went down one street, and there was a cul-de-sac off the, the side of the street, and the, the driver wanted to get the, the cul-de-sac done, too, for the people who live there. But it was too small to do a U-turn in. So he uh, actually plowed the cul-de-sac in reverse, uh, which was pretty amazing to see. So uh, I was out with a, a gentleman who's been at this for 28 years and takes a lot of pride in, in his work. Uh, and, I mean, when uh, when you haven't had that perspective you look at them and you think oh okay you're just driving around but man there is a lot of skill that goes into it 
Uh, you mentioned kind of having to navigate when there's cars parked. What were some of the other hazards or some of the other obstacles that you saw? Well, uh, there's there's manhole covers as well that can uh, can really uh, provide a, a bit of a, a bump. You got to be ready for that. Uh, different obstacles that might be on the road. Um, one of the things that our crew do an amazing job of is. They, they try their best not to throw the snow back up onto someone's uh, sidewalk or, or driveway. And so, I mean, they're looking ahead to see what's coming uh, and kind of shifting, uh, you know, a little bit this way or a little bit that way to try to avoid that. So a lot of uh, attention to detail when you're doing it. Um, you know, you also have to be aware of the other vehicles that are, are on the road. And, and of course, uh, you know, there's just that one person who's got to try and come up the, uh, the side of the plow to get ahead of it. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot going on. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they pay close attention to everything that's happening on the road. Uh, and and just do an amazing job for us. And you know, remember they're they're doing this. Our, this crew was going from 11 p.m. last night. Um, the, again, the gentleman I was driving with um, basically hasn't had a day off um, since the beginning of December. He worked over Christmas Eve, Christmas. So uh, you know, not only are they doing this amazing work for us, but you know, they're, they're doing it on uh, you know limited sleep and uh, you know a fair bit of coffee. <laughs> Yeah, I would. Uh, I would imagine you mentioned that too. I'm always amazed when you see a vehicle, and and usually it's not even a vehicle all that well equipped that tries to pass the snowplow. Yeah, you, you kind of shake your head at that. You just wonder what is this person thinking? Um, you know, some people think they're more important than others, and they're always uh, in a hurry. I guess, but you know, you got to be respectful of the fact that. Uh, those plows are out uh, doing a job for us. Those those people are doing uh, uh, an important job for us. And you know, be a little patient. Give them a bit of distance. Um, you know, that keeps everybody safe. So um, I'll tell you, it was a, a really unique experience. And and for me, uh, one of the key things, and you know, this is one of my mantras. I'm always harping on about this. Um, as cities, we often are pulled in different directions, and you know. Some cities in particular want to try and, and solve all the world's problems. Um, and that's all well and good. But the reality is, is that at the municipal level of government, there are some things that we are actually responsible for. Core services, things that people actually send their tax dollars to the city hall for. And we got to get those done right. And in POCO, we, we call that getting the basics right. And snow removal is one of those. And so... You know, I took a lot of pride in the fact that we have prioritized that as a city and to get, you know, a firsthand look at the work that goes into it um, was really, uh, really satisfying for me. Yeah, I would imagine that, that too. It's it, This is a lot of snow. I mean, it's not unheard of that we get this amount of snow, but it is. it has been sticking around a lot more, I think, than we've seen in the past. Uh, does POCO have enough equipment or, or plows and a number of, number of plows and workers to keep on top of it? Yeah, absolutely. When we go through our, our budgeting process, this is one of the things we don't want to skimp out on at all. Uh, we want, want to make sure that when the snow does hit, We've got enough equipment, we've got enough trucks, and we've got enough people who can operate them to keep our roads clear so people can get to where they need to get to in our community. And, uh, you know, again, this is why I think the experience I had is so important. Um, You know, so often it seems that 
lot of politicians want to make decisions um, without ever talking to the people who are actually doing the work, uh, you know, that they're deciding. And so for me, you know, I made a rule a long time ago that I was never going to make a decision without talking to the people who had impacts or talking to the people who have firsthand experience dealing with it. And so I think that that boots on the ground, uh, firsthand look, talking to and learning from the people who are actually doing the work is so important. And then that gives you a lot of insight when you're actually having to make these decisions as an elected official about how you budget, what you prioritize, uh, you know, where do you put your funds, where are your priorities, you know, all of that uh, is a, a much better decision having had the experience of talking to the people on the ground doing the work. And I know people are probably more understanding of this given the winter conditions and the snowfall, but in Port Coquitlam, have you been able to continue with garbage pickup and recycling pickup through these storms? Uh, I think that's one of the things that uh, I know our crews are are really proud of, of the fact that um, they have not been missing people's uh, garbage or recycling or green waste pickup. In fact, in Poco, one of the things we added uh, a couple years ago is an additional recycling pickup uh, between Christmas and New Year's because uh, if people's uh, houses were anything like my house with a, a couple of little ones in it, um, you get a lot of recycling after Christmas. Uh, once all the chaos is over and the presents have been opened, you get a lot of wrapping paper, a lot of boxes, and so we actually put on an extra recycling pickup during that time uh, to keep that stuff out of the waste stream and get it to you know, the proper recycling place it needs to go. And so, um, you know, not only have we been able to continue to pick up garbage and recycling and greenways, we're actually able to even add an extra pickup. Well, that's, uh, that is uh, reassuring, given that in some other places, uh, there has not been pickup, or there has been a postponement of pickup because uh, of the winter weather. Uh, what about residents? Are you seeing residents in Port Coquitlam? Is it, is it the same as elsewhere as far as being responsible for shoveling their walks and making sure that the, the hazards are removed from in front of their homes? Yeah, there's the same responsibility, I think, pretty standard throughout most cities that if your property uh, fronts the sidewalk, that you're responsible for that. Uh, and, and most people are really good about doing that. Um, there's some people who have challenges with it. Um, you know, uh, maybe it's a, um, a physical challenge, uh, could be a senior. Uh, you know, and, and in those cases, we always do our best to help people out. Um, but by and large, um, you know, people are really good. And, you know, it, it's pretty heartwarming, too, when you see neighbors helping neighbors. And there's a, a lot of that as well. Um, so it, it's it's been pretty good. The city also has responsibility for uh, certain pedestrian um, trails and, and crossings. And those ones that we're responsible for, we also prioritize as well. So in addition to our roads crew, we have our parks crew that go out and they do a tremendous job of clearing sidewalks and uh, making sure that people can get around on foot as well. And you so you've now done the ride along with the snow, uh, snow plow. What's next? Have you done the garbage trucks or what other core service I, are you going to head you know, out with? I'll, I'll tell you what, I've done the garbage truck. You know, the other thing on the, the bucket list, and uh, this is like the, the childhood dream, the Zamboni. <laughs> I got to get on top of the, the Zamboni. I had my uh, 
little guy out at stick and puck the other day and his favorite part is at the end he, he wants to watch the Zamboni uh, clear the ice so uh, maybe at some point uh, when he's a little bit bigger I'll get him up there. All right. Well, we will touch base with you uh, again to find out what the Zamboni operator uh, was like and what that experience was like as well. Mayor West, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. Well, earlier this week, we were contacted by a woman who said she wanted to talk about the fact she lives at home, she is semi-independent, she doesn't want to go into any kind of living condition, any kind of assisted living scenario, any kind of home, and she's able to live at home as long as she has a certain amount of support. But her concerns are that support has dwindled, and she says she doesn't understand why. Her name is Joyce Hassan, and I call up with her earlier this week and started off by welcoming her to the show and thanking her for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can you talk a little bit about your situation and the kind of home support you had been getting up until very recently? Yes, I was getting um, every day, morning and night service and also um, three times a week service till a month ago, I guess you would say. Um, and it would be Monday mornings, Monday afternoons, um, Monday evenings, and then Tuesday mornings, Tuesday evenings, Wednesday mornings, Wednesday evenings, Thursday mornings, and every other week I would have Thursday afternoon, and I would also have Thursday night. And then Friday mornings, Friday afternoons, and Friday evenings. And then Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, or not not afternoon, Saturday night, and Sunday morning and Sunday night. So recently they changed my hours of service, and um, it's gotten way worse. Like this last Friday, I didn't even get a sponge bath or shower, whatever you want to call it. Um, They only, they never even showed up. And they kept telling me, oh, well, we'll do it when the evening shift shows up. Well, the evening shift showed up, and the evening shift um, did not have it in their schedule to do a a two-and-a-half-hour shift opposed to a 45-minute shift. And they had other clients to go see after. So it wasn't, it it never got done. My house is looking like a pig pen. Did they give you any reason or explanation as to why the home care workers weren't showing up? They didn't say why they didn't show up on Friday afternoon. They didn't even notify me that they weren't going to be showing up. So it wasn't as though... A lot of time-wise, it's... um, I'm I'm at a medical appointment, and um, they phone me and they say we've got nobody to send you tonight. And they, then they also tell my doctor that they're not trying to take service away from me; that they're trying to help me with it. Well, I wear shoes that the government paid for, um, the orthopedic shoes that are built right to the foot. And I don't have the mobility very good to take them on and off. 
So home support puts them on in the morning, and they're supposed to be taking them off at bedtime. And that's not happening. And then there's some some mornings that they'll call me and they'll say, we don't have anybody to send you today till late late this afternoon, which means then I'm either going barefoot or I'm putting a cast boot on to go. But that's not what the doctor wants. She wants these specific shoes on my feet. And so and just to clarify, so this is this is home care and it's through Vancouver Coastal Health? Yes. And so they didn't tell you then that this was because of the snow and that workers couldn't get to you or a staff shortage no, or anything like that? Nothing to do with the it snow. It was happening before the snow. Okay. And they, did they say anything about there was a staff shortage or, or give you any explanation as to why? No, they just, they insisted now um, for the past two months, they insisted that they have two workers each time, not one. And so if they can't find two, they don't send anybody. And is that a change in the past? Did you have times when one worker yes. would come and help you? Yes, I did. Hmm. But one of the workers tried to push me down, so I phoned the police on it. And after I phoned the police on her, then um, this started. And they waited till right before, practically, our religious holidays. And um, then they started this business two-person um, each time somebody comes in, they're not coming in without two people. Okay. Is that because of what happened then with the police report? They want to make sure there's always somebody there in case something happens? They claim that, but there's some of the workers that have come in by themselves um, originally that I still have coming. Like, why does that need to change to the point that I have no service? Why can't they say, okay, this is what we're going to do, and then if there's a problem, then you call the police. But for the first part of the time-wise that they started this business that they don't show up, I've been calling the non-emergency fire department until they said to me, you know, if, if you can't get this resolved, you might have to go into a facility. No, that's not an option for me. Like you say, I think for, for anybody, if there's an option to stay in your home with some level of support, that that's always the better option, and that's what people would like to do, yourself included. Yeah, and I do all my own cooking. I do all my own grocery shopping and everything. The girls don't do my cooking. They don't do my grocery shopping. Sometimes I've, I'll have them cut, help me cut something up. Maybe that's too hard for me. I understand, too, that you've also reached out to, to Jewish Family Services. You've tried to contact your MLA. Have you had any luck there? Um, Jewish Family Services is going to try to help me out a little bit. But they, they can't give me um, home support because they only have it for the seniors. They don't have it for... And I'm not quite a senior yet. Hmm. And so they don't have that. And that's a paid service. And I, my finances are to the point that I, I cannot afford to pay for the service. The government pays for this other service. So, so what are you going to do, Joyce, about this? If the, if the workers aren't coming and it doesn't seem like you're getting a lot of answers, what are you going to do? I really don't know what to do. And that's why I've decided to go public. And maybe the putting it on public of how they're treating me and how they're mistreating me. My basic needs are not getting met. Um, My hair hasn't been washed for about 
four months. It, it's really bad conditions, and it shouldn't be happening like that. I basically have to make the best of it. I've got a service dog, too, and we're putting up with a lot of guff that we shouldn't have to. And when they did the merger, they merged all the all the um, home support for, that the government's paying for um, from the private sectors into this Vancouver Coastal. If you were in Vancouver Coastal, if you're in Fraser Health, it went to Fraser Health. We were told that it shouldn't do anything to our service that we're getting, that we shouldn't really feel any impact from it. Oh, yeah, we feel a lot of impact from it. And it's just getting worse instead of better. And I've tried to reach out to um, Adrian Dix's office. So it, it it's just snowballing. And it has to stop. It has to come to a halt. Well, depending on where you live, you likely woke up to a lot of snow outside. And as we've been reporting throughout the day, the Alex Fraser Bridge was shut down in both directions. And that was because of some ice buildup on the bridge. Crews are dealing with that. We'll keep you updated on that as well. A lot of people out digging and shoveling the sidewalks. But it can also be extremely dangerous when people are exposed to these cold temperatures for extended periods of time. Joining me to talk a little bit more about that is Nicole Mucci with the Union Gospel Mission. Nicole, thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, thank you for having me today. What happens with the Union Gospel Mission as far as demand, and what do you see when we experience weather like this? You know, this has been a really unprecedented time in terms of the length of how many nights we've had really cold weather. And so, um, we have a shelter that has got 92 spaces available every single night. And over the last uh, two, two to three weeks, we have been um, very close to being full or we've been at capacity and had to um, work really hard to find folks somewhere else to stay for the evening. And when that happens, how does that work as far as if your shelter beds are full or your space is full, where do you turn to find other space that's open? So our outreach workers, um, they try calling 2-1-1 to see what other shelters might have space. Um, If they don't have space, they will try to send folks to the emergency warming centers. Um, And if people don't feel comfortable with that or they're really looking to be able to lay down and sleep somewhere, then we do our best to outfit them with um, the survival gear they'll need so they can stay safe outside. I would imagine, too, there are still a lot of questions or a lot of issues with it's not just so simple as coming in from the cold and and getting a shelter bed that if somebody has, say, a pet or if somebody has possessions and doesn't want to leave them or or has any of those kind of things going on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important consideration because a lot of the time um, people might have a misunderstanding that if somebody is experiencing homelessness, then they're going to immediately want to jump into any shelter that's available. But the reality is that every single person is so unique and their circumstances that have led them into homelessness are unique and their lives are unique. Like you said, they might have a pet that they don't feel comfortable. um, They don't feel comfortable parting with. They might have all of their belongings in a shopping cart and nowhere to store it overnight. And I couldn't imagine being asked to part with my single uh, world belongings for a warm bed. That's a really difficult trade-off for some people.
Uh, yeah, and I, 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 I'm glad that you mentioned that or, or kind of explain that further because it is there. There are more issues to it. You're right. I think people just uh, would sometimes jump to the the assumption that any warm bed is better, but there there's so much else going on. Uh, do you find then are people putting themselves in more danger given the, the weather and and trying then to find shelter in other places that that just aren't safe, especially with these cold temperatures? Um, I think it's. It's not necessarily that it's more danger because any kind of extreme weather means extreme need. And so whether that that need is to stay alive and to stay warm. But um, there are a few different ways to look at it. And so sometimes like we have our mobile mission rescue vehicles, which are fully outfitted um, outreach vans, and they will go out to find folks where they're at and try to make sure that if they are in a situation where they don't feel comfortable coming into a shelter, where they are more comfortable and feel safer sleeping outdoors, that they at least have their sleeping bags, that they have thermal underwear, that they have those items that can help them stay safe and as warm as possible in that time. Um, But there is the risk that somebody sleeping outdoors might want to try to warm themselves up with a heater or a candle if it gets really cold. And that itself can be really life-threatening. We've seen people die from that in the past before. But unfortunately, people right now are faced with the potential of freezing to death at night or possibly putting their lives at risk to stay warm. And, and are we making progress on that? Because it does seem like we've been having that conversation for quite a few years of low barrier or no barrier shelters, making sure people don't have to leave their things, leave their pets and are able to find space that is more accommodating. Well, I think it's it's beyond just emergency shelter because what people need in order to no longer have to deal with the elements 24 hours a day, 365 days a year is housing. And if they don't have, if we are not looking at the long-term solutions and we're only looking at whether or not we've got enough shelter spaces or um, sleeping bags and emergency vehicles going out to connect with people, then we're not looking at the bigger picture. And that is so important for us um, as a society to consider what is this bigger picture and how can we make sure that people have what they deserve, which is a house somewhere to be safe, warm, to feel dignified, and to have the support they need to live a healthy, balanced life. Do you know how we where, where the numbers are? As far as I know that we do homeless counts in the city and in Metro Vancouver, I'm sure the pandemic has, has had an impact on that as well. But do we know how many people currently are in the city and in need of housing? You know, unfortunately, we actually don't have an accurate or current number that um, people could look at anecdotally to get an idea because the last uh, point in time homeless count occurred at the beginning of March 2020, so just before the pandemic happened and everything changed. And so, unfortunately, the the homeless count last year was cancelled and they recently um, the city recently announced in November that they're actually canceling the 2022 homeless count as well. So um, service providers and shelters and different organizations really only have the information we're sharing with one another and kind of anecdotal evidence that the need has increased. Like we're seeing that our shelter is often close to capacity or over capacity. Um, but beyond that, we don't have that same level of data 
to to support how many people are experiencing homelessness. And that's unfortunate because the reason we do the homeless count is because the people who are experiencing homelessness count. Exactly. Uh, what, what can people do? You mentioned that, that if people are either choosing or, or don't have another option and are going to be out in the cold, the, the, at least to, they can have a sleeping bag or they can have something waterproof and, and protect themselves. Are people being asked to, to make donations or what is the best thing people can do to help out at this point? Um, it's kind of twofold. So one of the things that we always encourage people to do is to, um, if they have the means to donate to an organization in their neighborhood or in their community, like UGM, for example, um, then those service providers are able to get that emergency gear needed to folks and then start to build those really important relationships with them that hopefully will create space long term to allow people to exit homelessness. Um, but the other thing that you can do when you're in weather like this is if you have a vehicle and you have space in your trunk and you have, you know, a few old sleeping bags or you have some good quality um, waterproof gear that maybe you're not using, keep it with you. And if you see someone who's wet and cold, maybe pull over and offer it to them. My husband recently did that with somebody in North Bend who looked cold and the person was very thankful um, so it's it's twofold. You can do what you can if you feel comfortable, but also find an organization that you want to support because they're doing their best to work with folks. All right. That's uh, that's good advice. Definitely. What if somebody sees someone who maybe is doesn't looks like they're they're struggling or is out in the cold and clearly not prepared for it or not dressed appropriately? But if you're not comfortable, say, approaching the person or talking with the person, is there Somewhere that people should call. I mean, if it's a scenario where it doesn't seem to warrant 911, is there something else people can do as far as calling for help? It, that can be kind of tough sometimes. I would suggest calling your, um, potentially calling the non-emergency police line in your neighborhood because each municipality obviously has a different jurisdiction. And then you can ask them to do a wellness check for that person. Um, and then that way officers are able to go and and either hopefully redirect the person to a warming center or a shelter or at the very least make sure they're, they're, that they are okay. Um, and I, it's so tough because right now we're dealing with a pandemic, we're dealing with folks um, who are really struggling with substance use disorder and a very toxic drug supply and we're dealing with cold weather and so um, people who are experiencing homelessness are in a really, really tough situation right now. All right, Nicole, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much.